me talk you through the two most emotional, stressful months of my sales career. It's no big deal to call a CTO and tell I want to talk. You cannot stand on the sideline and basically wait until the dice rolls itself. It's never going to happen. I don't know if this is going to be on the record or off the record. It's almost like playing with cards, this job. Like, it's like you, you get given a hand of cards and like you have to do the best with what, what you have. I think someone might have been watching, watching down on me. Me and Jack going into this, when, when he originally told me exactly the same, like, oh, you know, Jack, I've got this idea, you know, what about this? I just, my first thought was, my God, if no, I don't even care if anyone, like, listens to this, you know, if I take one key takeaway from every recording, I'll be such a better rap. This is no big deal, a sales podcast. Because it's them yeah, on my show that they more have. more likely to close the deal. Yeah, yeah, you're more likely to close the deal because it's almost like they brought their guard down. I mean, I suppose maybe if you're not like selling some absolute roadman that's just like effing and blinding on the first discovery call, then maybe potentially not. But like further along the process, you know, when you built your champion up. Ian, yeah. I was just on your LinkedIn page and I see that we both cut, we both cut our teeth in the recruitment game. Yeah, I did for all my sins, mate. Yeah, how long ago were you in the three and a half years ago now? But I did four years or so. Who were you with? Which, which company? I was with a company called CPL. It was like an Irish recruitment agency that based that have started an office over here and drives and drives of that. I also worked for Hydrogen for a bit. If you remember them, they're right. based on the cheap side. I hated it. I hated it. You with CD recruitment. Yeah, CD, God, how many ops have we had with those guys? Are they good or bad? Bad, 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 yeah. bad, 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 bad. They, like, <laughs> desperately should buy sales loft, and they won't do it. Oh, who is it you speak to there? Is it Brad? Brad Luton? Yeah, Brad. Yeah. It was a guy called Tom Andrews before. He's now left. There was another guy as well. But, yeah, Brad was our sort of guy. Because he knew – I don't know if you recognise – did you know Ollie Sharp? He used to be, like – and he came from CD. Yeah. He was like, and then was at LinkedIn for 10 years, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, I never actually worked when Ollie was, worked with CD when Ollie was there, but I do know of him through the industry and obviously from my time at CD. So they're a bit tight, to be honest. I'm surprised they'd even consider buying your software, even having a conversation with well, you. How did you make it out, Ian? What did you do to get out of the ghetto? Do you know what? Yeah, the kids. So someone I worked with, he he was working with a candidate who really he we got on really well with. He ended up getting a job at Zawara and asked my colleague Steve to go over. Steve is someone I got on really well with, and still do to this day. I play golf with him on a regular basis, and he said, "Ian, look, get out of there, come and join me." And I suppose the rest is history. Yeah. So that was quite a few years ago. Now I was there for a couple of years. Been here a miracle for just over well three and a half years almost now. So yeah, it was about six seven years ago I think I was in recruitment. Oh well, it's a list of memory and happily so. Like I reckon I, I know all a lot of good AEs I know come from recruitment backgrounds. Yeah, I do. What I Fortune think, fire. Yeah, it's an interesting one, right? I because I was in technology sales recruitment anyway. I I had a good understanding of technology. We. One thing they were good at CD was actually teaching you like about the products, what it actually does, and really making sure that you understand who you're recruiting for and what they actually do. So when I when I moved into software sales, it almost came a bit more naturally to me. And obviously, you have some of the sales skills anyway. Obviously, not quite as polished in recruitment, but but yeah, I think that helps. And it's just a case of refining your tool track and, as you say, being less ghetto. Yeah, yeah, and less of a bullshit. 
as well. <laughs> Pretty much, I yeah. Off of that. So I was like, you can't lie anymore, Jack. I was like, oh shit, okay. Okay, well, listen, it's nice to meet you, mate. Thanks for joining us today. We've not met each other before. They do feel very familiar, so I feel like our paths may have crossed once or twice in the past, but it's back to the podcast. You've got a big deal to talk to us about. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to tell me sort of how, how you want to run it? And then we obviously I've had a read through. I've got some notes here and made some notes. So I've been doing some homework, shall we say. But yeah, do you want to tell me how you typically run it? And then we can obviously go into it. Sure. I think all we need to know, me and Jack, before we start it is like some high level about the deals. We don't want to hear any juice though, because we'll eventually dig into that. Every podcast we've done, and I think potentially you're now the eighth or ninth guest, Ian, is like, it's been really different and it's because every deal is really, really different, but we'll try and keep the deal and almost, you know, basically the linear timeline of that deal as the central part of the podcast. And then we'll like discovery almost just dip in and be like, wow, okay, we really want to hear more about that. I think from the high level though, Jack's got three questions he wants to ask. And then I've got one before we go on. At the start, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to, I'll save one of them so that you can tell us when you, when you actually do it, because it might be a bit better if you tell it emotively when you first tell it. But the first one is we're going to ask you how big was it? five six or seven figures where your brain was going there Ian. and then and then i'm going to ask you if you could allude to who it was in any way whatsoever like we don't we obviously we want you to keep it anonymous want to protect you but if you can think of like perhaps a funny way to allude to it or you know a certain industry or say oh, i was a big player in the transportation game or there were a huge or, you know we have a guess that, when it was like uh, it was Big German retailer, whatever. I think the, the guest we had last on, he signed a seven-figure deal with Amazon. He was like, it's the biggest company in the world. <laughs> I think he joked. That could be anything, right? Yeah, um, that's fair enough. But then and anytime we'll, you do mention we'll the company... You kind of oh, yeah, to talk this through the deal. Oh, sorry, yeah. No, no, no. That's important to mention. We're, we're, anytime you do say the company, if it comes out of conversation back, simple, we'll bleep it out. Or if you say a name of somebody, a stakeholder, a decision maker, they will cut it out. Awesome. Awesome. In my notes, I'm trying to keep job titles instead of names because I know I will end up. I've just basically got like cue cards, just be like, oh, I'll talk about X or Y. And I know if I put their name down, I will end up saying it. So I've just got, I've just got job titles. Yeah, yeah. You know what's interesting, actually? Not any, in any podcast we've had, no one has actually mentioned the company name so far. No. So we've not even had to bleep it. And it's been like, you know, very flowing conversations. What people have is they've been like one podcast, Jason, he's a really good storyteller and he really used people's names a lot. But I think, you know, me and Jack also want to understand as part of the deal, you know, what stakeholders were you speaking to? What were they? How did they get involved, etc. But yeah, normally what we'll do in is we'll kick off maybe in five minutes. Mm-hmm. We'll record up until about 10 to five. And then we just record, you know, basically the whole thing. And then we send it off to the producer. They cut it down. We create the reels that we then post on LinkedIn. But basically, before we start, I will introduce you for like 30 seconds. You don't have all of your amazing achievements on LinkedIn, but obviously, you know, I know that you placed very highly in 100 over 100 and you've spent, you know, the past seven years in some form of enterprise sales role. I don't know a lot about Miracle. Sorry, miracle, yeah. Yeah, yep. Miracle. I know Sense. Um, they say old BI, but is there anything else you think worth mentioning when I introduce you? I'm not really good at talking about myself and my success, but uh, you know what's actually leave it and Jack will ask you a question and then we can go from there. Sounds, yeah, sounds sure. good. Sounds good. Well, where, did, where did you place in hundred over hundred? Seventh, I think. That's good. Oh, I remember. Are you going that? to the awards next week? Do you know what? I'm not. I've, I think my manager will be there. She's part. Of, she's part of the the leaders. So right, I, they go to market team. I can't remember what that is now. I can't remember what they call it. But I'm actually working from home all of next week because I'm dog sitting my in laws' dog whilst they're away on a cruise, which would be lovely. So nice. Yeah. 
So I'm basically... Uh, what is it? What's that? What, what's the dog? It's a cockapoo. But the problem is, is that I also have a dog. I have a springer. It will be quite interesting leaving them to a home. My dog will end up eating that dog. So they got on really yeah, well. Leaving them alone for like four hours, five hours, and mostly not not a good idea. So I'm going to avoid that. Can't bring one with you either. <laughs> No, unfortunately not. Unfortunately Jack, not. isn't your dog a cockapoo? My dog is a cockapoo, yeah, and he's a right little see you next Tuesday as well. So I don't I know exactly what you're going through. Oh, believe it or not, they're actually all right. But I just I last time we left them, we left them at the in-laws' house and their neighbour complained about the noise because the dogs were just barking the entire time. So we won't yeah, do yeah, it when I'm here and it'll be okay, but just not leaving them alone. The only and, reason my dog is any use is I almost got a parking ticket yesterday, but he went so spare at a parking warden through your front window that the parking warden ran away and I didn't get a ticket. So basically what you're telling us is you like parking illegally, but you take your dog out to prevent you getting any tickets. Yeah, yeah. Ian, what company were you at with this deal? Miracle. Okay, Miracle. Cool. That's good to know. And yeah, I think we're pretty much good to go now is everyone ready yeah yeah man take us away welcome back to another episode of no big deal where we are joined today by ian hayes ian has been selling enterprise software for the previous seven years and he came on our radar because he placed seventh in a hundred over a hundred of the top SaaS sales reps in the uk last year is that correct ian yeah that's correct fantastic and he has come today to talk to us about a big deal, which, you know, probably isn't a big deal for everyone else, but hopefully it will be for our listeners. So thanks for joining in. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited. Always have you in. So thanks for joining us, mate. I've got a few questions just to kick us off. First question is, you don't have to give us a specific number, but can you tell us how many figures is this deal? What are we looking at here? So... Seven figures on an annual basis. Yeah, boy. Lovely stuff. Nice one. Okay, cool. So it's a juicy one. And second of all, are you able to give us any illusion to perhaps you look at, we obviously anonymize who the company are and anybody involved, but the industry or the sector or the space that they work in? Yeah, sure. They are one of the leading household retailing names in the UK. I won't really give you the sector that they're in because it will give it away, but they're a household name. They have hundreds of stores worldwide. And you, everyone would have shot there at some point in their life, I'm sure. I like Amazing. that. Okay. Yeah, I like that a lot as well. Okay, cool. The, the, the main reason that we started this as well was to hear about like, not just the battle stories and the war stories and the way that you navigate through the deal, but also to hear about what the deal has done for sales reps and what it means to you. So can you just tell us, what did the deal do for you once it was closed, once it was signed? What did it do for your reputation or for your personal life? Or- yeah, do you know that's a really good question, actually. I think for me personally, it was... It's one of the largest deals I've signed, and it was certainly my first sort of really large deal. So for me, it kind of actually gave me the confidence in my own ability that I am able to sign these types of deals. Before I'd signed smaller deals, still six figures, but not quite the seven-figure mark. And it gives you that sort of confidence when you're speaking to people in the C-suite at these large multi-billion dollar retailers that... Actually, you can do this and people do have an interest in what you're saying and that you are credible in front of these people. So that's how it transformed me professionally. I mean, personally, I didn't really change too much. I'm very much like go easygoing. Just uh, look, it's my job, right? I'm here to sign deals at the end of the day. And I think my wife was more excited about it than I was in the at the end. But, but yeah, I didn't change too much personally, but professionally, it certainly just sort of elevates you and 
all of a sudden everyone in the business knows who you are and oh you're that guy that signed that deal can you tell us a bit more about it and you start becoming a bit more of a thought leader in your own organization when it comes to the the sort of enterprise level selling that we do. Yeah, I think that's so important. And as well, you know, from a coaching aspect, a lot of reps can then look up to you and say, hence why we created this podcast, because there isn't a place to go for other sales reps in the industry to learn the deal reports and reviews of other reps closing big deals. So we have this as a way. And interestingly enough, you know, on the last episode, it was Charlie who closed his first seven-figure deal. And he found out at the end of his deal that the contract was needed to be signed by nine people. And, you know, you know, in hindsight, all I just thought was your one. And I'm really looking forward to digging into it and hearing about it. So I think to kick us off, it'd be great to understand how this deal came about. Yeah, sure. So I suppose we would. We were in the right place at the right time, but there was also a change within that organization. So new CEO entered, new chief digital officer entered the business. The CEO had actually previously run an organization where they had adopted a marketplace strategy. And we also had an executive relationship with the chief digital officer that had also come in. So we were in a really fortunate position from that perspective. And what that meant is that we were basically able to And we always talk about it in sales, right? Selling from the top down. And this is actually one of those real nice scenarios where we were actually able to do that. Go in right from the top, sell down, which I still think has its challenges, right? But it makes it easier to a certain extent. And we were certainly able to leverage those relationships throughout the deal. So we used our execs, made obviously get in touch with them. I'd been reaching out to sort of director level people and our BDR team, marketing team had been targeting them as well. But actually really leveraging those executive relationships to get us in at the top was something that really helped, I'd say, open up the opportunity. Had this brand heard of Miracle before you'd engaged with them? That's a good question. The chief digital officer had yes, because we had that relationship with him at, at that executive level. Some of the people within the business had, just through like our outbounding material, marketing material, some events that we had been hosting, but actually having some meaningful conversations, I'd say no. So uh, this is... Uh already strikes me as something which is important here since this is like the first time that you this is the first time you close a deal this big and it's given you the confidence thereafter to go and have these conversations how did it feel when you're having these conversations with vps and c-suite and top level execs before before this deal would close like you're just almost a feeling were you feeling like a newcomer what was that like looking back now at the time i didn't feel like I was a newcomer, but it certainly feel a bit like imposter syndrome. Was I good enough to do this job? Was I good enough to have these conversations with these senior people? Was I credible enough to sort of hold a room and and really actually get buy-in from these senior execs? It felt a bit like that. And I'd say I'd say what's what what's really as I say, I mentioned obviously that's changed. And looking back now, I've realized that when I was having those conversations before I signed this deal, I was using a lot of filler words and I wasn't very confident in my talk track. Although I was saying the same things, the delivery was very different. So I was still telling the same stories. I was still giving them the same touch points and speaking to them how I would. It was just the delivery was very different. You can, and on reflection, you can actually see that. And when I was talking to them, looking back at videos and things like that, you do start to realize that obviously a lot of it is what you say, but it's also how you say it and how you deliver that content is really important. And that's critical because I always think it's the same, you know, and you said closing six figure deals up to this seven figure, 
all that really changes is they're still human beings at the end of the day. They're just the, the size of the deal is a lot bigger. I know potentially you might need to deliver like more value or be, you know, more streamlined. At the beginning of the deal, you're in a, the executive level. Talk to us about what happened. You know, you go and see them face to face. You have calls. How do you prep for those? So we're big on prep here at Miracle. That's one thing I would say. So going into a meeting and almost knowing more about your prospect than they know about themselves is something that's really important. There's a lot of, we had a lot of McKinsey people running through our business. So they care a lot about data and insights and all of this good stuff. So first things first, making sure you're prepped was really important. Unfortunately, I joined Miracle two months before the coronavirus started. So I didn't actually get a chance to meet with these guys face-to-face at all throughout the sales cycle. I think we had two executive meetings face-to-face. I wasn't actually in the room when they happened, but I was certainly certainly one that was driving behind the scenes, making sure that everyone had, had all of their prep to hand, know what they're talking about, what's the talk track, what are we trying to get out of this meeting and all of that. So uh, yeah, didn't meet with them face-to-face due to coronavirus. Obviously, we've met with them multiple times since, but preparation was really key. And actually, as I say, going in there and Knowing more about their business and their industry than they potentially knew was vitally important so that we could be seen as thought leaders within that industry. And what kind of stuff, what kind of stuff did you do to, to, yeah, to help prepare yourselves, like to clue yourself up and, and to get a better knowledge of them? What was the day-to-day kind of research you were doing to help get the edge so that you could sound credible when you're speaking to them? Yeah, of course. Good question. So I think I think a lot of it is like basic stuff, right? Everyone reads annual reports, every, like they're a public company. Everyone reads annual reports, all of that good stuff. But I think it's actually going a sort of level deeper and not just understanding them, but understanding their competition, what they're doing differently, why it's working for them. We're fortunate enough that we have a lot of success within this industry that we that this, this retailer work in. So we have a lot of data points anyway that we could share with them and some really good stories around what works what doesn't and actually also leveraging we have a team internally we call them the our platform advisory team who are basically a team of ex-consultants who provide us with a lot of insights and data and all of that good stuff that really enable me to do my job in the best way possible but actually leveraging all of that and putting it into a digestible format for my execs to take into those meetings when they met them on site was really important. So not just overloading them with everything because not all data is great and not all information is important, but actually giving them the right snippets to be able to go in with um, when they were in these face-to-face ones. And obviously when I was also speaking to them and sitting there in front of the CEO, CIO, CFO and actually sound incredible. Having all of that to hand was really important as well. So interesting you say that, Ian, and it makes me think about like, when you're talking about social proof and coming in there and having these extra consultants, was this a live project or was it something that you had to educate them that they needed to adopt because maybe they were getting left behind by the competition? The latter of the two. So they they weren't necessarily getting left behind, right? This company was still growing. They were doing really well. And what we sell is ultimately an extension to your e-commerce, right? Their e-commerce growth was still very strong at the time. However, what we saw was actually that their competitors' e-commerce growth was actually significantly outperforming theirs. And there were reasons behind that we that we could help with and our technology would help solve. So they didn't necessarily know that they had this pain until we brought it to their attention. And actually then not necessarily telling them that it's a it's a pain and that they need to solve it, but actually educating them on 
what would be the upside if you were to solve this issue? Do you know at this stage if the competition are in a deal as well? So not at the early stage. I'll come on to it maybe in a bit a bit later, but there were almost three sales cycles within this one sales cycle because there's ultimately a group that we we were so we were selling to who have different subsidiaries. And then also what we found out right at the end as we were about to get into the contracting phase is actually they they like to bring in a consultancy who will do their own external and individual analysis. So we had to sell to them and convince them that we were the, not just the right technology, but the right partner for them to go on this sort of journey with. So where there were no, no competition at the start. We were the sort of thought leaders. They were leveraging us for a lot of the insights. And there was some competition throughout the process. But yes, interesting. So almost what I'm hearing here, Ian, is that you convinced them that this is something they wanted to do. They got the external partner involved to do this process. And then you're almost in some form of RFP to basically think of this is worth doing. Yeah, it was it, it wasn't quite a formal RFP process. It was very much an informal one, but there was yeah. there was an RFP process from that vet from that sort of external consultant company to make sure that yes, not only we are the right technology, but we also bring with us the right expertise and and everything else around it. Interesting. And then it almost makes me think, you know, you had the beauty at the beginning to be have like executive alignment, you know, that's what we dream about as sales reps, right? Getting in there right at the top. And then that probably got filtered down and you it got focused really on like quite strict decision criteria. Could you talk to us more about, you know, that process and how you advise the customer, et cetera? Yeah, of course. So the decision criteria for them was it was it was pretty complex, right? So where they are a group and they have different subsidiaries across different geographies, for them, we it was more actually about a case of not why should we do it? It's more of which 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 subsidiary should we do with this with first? And actually, how did we go about educating them on to make to make the right decision? So they have subsidiaries across Europe and the globe. And we were basically in there telling them and giving them insights and data around, okay, this is why we recommend you launching with this subsidiary first over this one, and providing them with the right data points. And as I mentioned, there were sort of three sales cycles. One of them was at group, one of them was with this consultancy. And the third and final one was actually with that subsidiary, because ultimately, yes, the group had made a decision that they wanted to do it. And the consultancy were happy with everything, everything that we suggested and that all of that good stuff. But then we had to bring the subsidiary on board and actually educate them on the value that we were going to bring to their business. Because ultimately, yes, the group, the group can make decisions and push it down on them, but they don't like to operate like that. They want to make sure that what they're doing is actually brought into by the entire company from e-commerce manager all the way up to CEO in that subsidiary, all the way up to CEO in the group. So several different stakeholders there, all involved and really, as I mentioned, three different sales cycles for me. And we we can discuss each one if you like in a bit more detail, but but yeah. Yeah, I'd like to do that as well. I think as a, a, a bit of a general theme, what we're finding is that in these deals, we find that the rep has to be a bit of a project manager. You have to kind of like make sure everybody's moving at your pace. You have to keep everybody on track. But the other thing as well is you have to be really firm. You have to be really direct and tell people like, we've done that already. We're not doing it again. Like speak to each other if you want to find out. And can you give us a bit of an insight into how, if at all, you, because I know that part of this, of closing one of these big things is being educational, being consultative, being 
almost like a coach these companies to try and introduce them to your software and how you can benefit how they can benefit from it but there's another part to it is that you also are a salesperson that you have to be direct and, and firm with them did you find a similar balance and, and i guess if so did that come up in this kind of in these in one of these pre-deal cycles yeah i, I mean i hate several people calling it different things I, I like to refer to myself as a quarterback in terms of the deal I should never really run with the ball on my own. And if I am, then something's got seriously wrong with my defence in front of me. I should throw the ball to the right person at the right time when we're making that play. And ultimately, we should have the team around them helping them do their job in the best way possible, right? So you can caption that and I'm just going to trademark it. So basically, yeah, so how 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 do we make sure that this deal progresses, right? If I as I say, me running with it on my own is never going to work. I'm never going to score that touchdown. But... Am I bringing in my execs at the right time? Am I passing the ball over to my technical people who are then running that evaluation with their tech teams and mapping out who the best technical person is on their side to be able to get to CIO, CTO, to be so for them to be able to sign off the technical roadmap? So that was really, obviously, there's a lot of education that goes on, and that's mainly on the business side. But on the tech side as well, it's really important to make sure that they're not left behind and the business sign off and tech say, well, hang on a minute, we haven't got the resources. We're not going to do this for another 6, 12, 18 months, or whatever that may be. So as I say, I call it the quarterback role. You just called it a project manager. But I think they're both very similar in the sense that you have to make sure that your team are bought in and making sure that their lives are easy. Like we have sales engineers, in my opinion, they're not there just to do a demo. They're not there just to go through the architecture. They're still selling, right? They're called sales engineers for a reason. And if they ever stop selling, then ultimately you will not get that tech win. So how do you enable them to do their job in the best way possible? They're not going to go out there and do the research that I've done. They're not going to go out there and do all of this other stuff, but actually providing them with that, that data, that information for them to be able to go in there and qualify and make sure that they're aware of any sort of speed bumps that could come up in the road is really important. And same again with the execs. They haven't got the time to be able to go in there and understand what's really keeping the CIO up at night or whatever it may be. We're going in there and telling them that they have issues here. This is what we're trying to solve. Can you can you portray that message for us, please? You know, do you know what? I've never heard something true of you said. <laughs> it's so true that everybody's got a job to do in this. And this and, and this is what I want to ask you. How you've I could, I would I buy into you already and we've only met for the last half an hour or so, but how have you got people, especially in this deal, to get on board with you and get and get and get moving with you on this deal like because engineers are different are different people to execs who are different people to marketing who are different people and, and there's all these different personalities you've got to try and bring together and you've got to try and make sure that everybody believes you that this is a deal that we can win and also wants to help and that's just as it's an internal cell as much as an external cell so I don't know. Can you? Is there any words, pearls of wisdom you can share with us on how to make to get everybody on board with you? Especially how you did it in this deal. Yeah, and John, you know that's one of my strong points. Actually, getting people on side internally. It's a really, I think it's a skill that we really sort of underestimate as salespeople, especially in the enterprise world, right? Where there are, I think there were 15, 16 different people involved from my team in this deal alone. So how do you get 16 different people bought into the idea that, yes, we are going to win this and they're not wasting their time? So I think one, one thing for me is just being honest and not wasting their time, even on deals where maybe I'm not as confident. Be honest with them. Tell them, look, hey, hey, look, I know this is a bit of a long shot, this one, but I could really do with you helping me out. Look, I've done all the prep. I've done all of this. And you jump in on this call with me. And actually getting them to buy into you more as a person, buying into the opportunity, I think is a really big win. Because as soon as they buy into you, they're going to buy into the opportunity anyway. 
If they don't believe in you, they're never going to want to work with you. They don't believe in that. No matter what the opportunity is, I could come with our biggest sort of North Star idea and sort of our top tier one account that we've always wanted to sell to. If they don't believe in me, they never believe that I'm going to close that deal. So how do I get them to believe in me is really important. And I think it comes down to honesty, transparency, and just doing the right things for them so that they don't have to do it. Doing doing that extra work couldn't even count the number of hours that my tech team spent with them. But being in the position where I was always on the calls as well, even though I wouldn't have much value from a technical perspective, being there so that then I could take that information and pass that over to whoever it may be is having another conversation. So I'm always that focal point, right? You, as, as I mentioned, the quarterback is always involved in every play. So I should know what's going on. I should know which structure is going to be happening in that next call. I should know where that ball's going to next and why it's going there. And I should dictate where it's going. And I've got a question to add on that. And this is my favorite piece. My analogy, I've said it before in the podcast, and I'm not going to go into it, but is the chessboard and you're moving the chess pieces around. What was the play you made? You know, what was your quarterback throw where you thought we've won this? You know what? <laughs> it's a really good question again. And I'd say there were sort of three or four of them. One of them, and I think this is the main one, right? So we found out that we knew a lot of their, we knew a lot of their execs, right? Through one way or another, we knew a lot. Investor relationships, our exec relationships through the industry, we had connections. The one person that we didn't have a connection to was the guy who was ultimately signing this contract. And what that meant was actually we had to find someone in his team who could become our tech champion and would then be able to convince that person, that CIO, that this is the right deal and that he should sign this. So what we did was I identified it early. I'm a big fan of org charts. Ask anyone who I work with. I have org charts of, and look, they're not always right. And you typically use your champion to help build them out and to understand who, who reports to who. But identifying a tech champion early and actually latching onto them to empower them to be able to sell this internally was really important. And I mentioned a minute ago about the amount of time our tech team spent with this guy. He actually presented, it was a 70 slide presentation to their CIO to basically say, look, this project isn't going to be a walk in the park, but ultimately it'll be worth it at the end of the day. And these are the things that we need to be aware of. And he did that. Obviously, we supported him and our tech teams were fantastic in this. But that was really the, the main thing was if we didn't have that tech champion on, in, on the inside, we would never have signed this deal. I think it's such a critical thing, you know, preparing champions is like a consistent theme of ours. And you obviously haven't put together some 70 deck templated rubbish to send in your tech champion. It's probably very, very thought out and methodical. How did you prep with them to present it? There's no real sort of silver bullet it's just spend time with them spend time with them understand make sure you understand what this what, what the issues could be i mean as i say this was a tech champion right this wasn't a business champion so what he really cared about was how long is it going to take what issues am i going to walk into further down the line what could potentially delay this and also if i am working on this where is my resource going to be taken from because we're going to have to stop working on other projects so making sure that we spent time with him to upskill him on all things miracle, everything that we, everything that sort of we've seen before in the past with other implementations that maybe have come up that have caused issues and actually issues aren't a bad thing. Like these tech guys know that there are going to be issues somewhere along the line. Not every implementation is smooth and perfect. So actually flagging them early with our champion so that he could raise that to the CIO who 
We then had confidence in what we were delivering. Instead of us just going in there and saying, no, look, everything's going to be fine. This isn't going to be an issue. And we get you live ASAP. He was never going to buy into that idea. What we had to do was go in there and say, look, these are the green flags. That would be absolutely fine. We have issues with this. This could potentially be a slight issue. We may need to look in some reworking some of that technology. But going in there with a clear understanding of what's good, what's bad, and what's ugly was really important to get actual buy-in from the CIO and provide our champion with the credibility that he needed to. Really interesting. Do you break down, do you like segment champions into business champions and tech champions? Absolutely. Yeah. You can't sign deals without both. Maybe I don't sign big enough deals. No, of course. And like where the deals that we sign, you do typically have a business champion, the guy who's driving the business case, driving the vision, driving the strategy, driving all that good stuff that's really fun and exciting to talk about from my perspective. But you do also need someone on the tech side to say, actually, we're going to get this done. And this is these are the issues. Potentially, this is what we're going to be doing. Because if you have the business saying yes and the tech team saying no, you're never going to sign a contract. And vice versa, you could go in there and sell to the tech teams. But if the business teams aren't bought into the vision and the strategy, once again, you're never going to sign a contract. And they're two different personas that you need to bring together at the right time to be able to get that document signed at the end of the day. Yeah. Do you know what? One thing I was thinking as well is like, how do you go about winning the hearts and mind of both? Because one thing we've been talking about recently is like winning the like the personal emotional battle with the, oh, that's not the right word, battles on winning the, the emotional side of the deal with one of your champions, finding out what's in it to, for them, finding out the emotive drivers for them, finding out what the personal win is. And I find that easier with like a sales champion, somebody who works with people because they're far more forthcoming. I find that really hard with technical champions because they're like, they just look straight through me. They're like, you are a salesperson. Get away from me. I know what you're trying to do. But you're absolutely right. You need both in order to move a deal forward in this, a deal of this velocity as well. Like it's far harder to do it with just one. Unfortunately, we've got some great sales engineers here with like bags of personality who know exactly how to do that. Because you're right. They, they're, they're salespeople too. At the end of the day, they're not just engineers. They've got plenty of that part of it as well. My, my next question is, when did you notice at, at some point in this deal cycle that, you know, there's a deal to be done here, there's blood in the water. I think if we've, we've got momentum here, I'm going to start pushing towards a close. So it was quite early. And I, I believe in like a salesman's or salesperson's instinct and like that gut feel that you get, you know, when you're having a conversation with a prospect and you go, do you know what? There's actually something here. Sometimes it comes a bit further on down the line, Sometimes it happens, actually happens quite early and you tend to have in the right sort of buy-in signs, you're having the right conversations with the right people. And there's, there is some pain, there's, there's a why now, there's why are we doing anything? And there's actually an answer to why your technology is the right answer for it, right? So I feel, I feel as though it was quite early. And for that reason, it was easier for me to get buy-in from the, the team around me to be able to actually get them bought into the idea and support me along this sales process. So it was quite early, but I think instinct's key in sales. I know when I'm working on opportunity early on if it's going to close or not. Was there any sort of specific in this instance with this deal? Did you have like a why now, a why change, a why miracle? Was there like a moment where you felt like, oh, these guys are going to move with us? Yes, yeah, there were clear sort of why. Was there was certainly a why now? They had their, their competition, as I say, were doing better in terms of e-commerce growth. There were new players entering the market that were also potentially going to eat into their wallet share. So it was a why now. The why do anything really 
their, their systems just weren't set up for the transformation that we we enabled them to have. So launching a marketplace is not easy. Tesco's famously did it 2008, I think they started 2012, they shut it down, right? They had the right idea, just the wrong execution. So how do... How did, how, did, how did I go in there and create the the why miracle? It seems like you had a pretty great process throughout being, to be honest, and you were able to deliver value. However, I know that that probably is not the case. So I think it would also be great to understand, like, when did you think you'd lost the deal? I don't, I don't, I don't think at any point I thought we'd lost the deal. I could feel it slipping. Okay. Um, quarter to quarter, I could feel it slipping, and that was that was mainly due to mainly due to there being three three sales cycles. So we knew we'd have to sell to the group. That was absolutely fine. We knew we were going to have to sell to the individual subsidiaries. That was absolutely fine. One thing that we just were not aware of, and we almost got blindsided by, was them bringing in this external consultancy. That that was unexpected, and especially when I've been sitting there and understanding and believing that we're going to get we're going to go into contracting phase and start sort of looking at legal documents and all of this good stuff. That then came up out of nowhere. And I think it was Q4 for us when that happened. So I could feel it slipping. I didn't feel for one minute that we were ever going to lose it, but it certainly felt as though that this signature that we were expecting Q1, based on everything that they were telling us and we we were listening to, we, we felt as though it could potentially be Q2, Q, even potentially Q3 now that you have an external consultancy coming in who are now evaluating everything you've been telling them for the last nine months. So yeah, I didn't think we were ever going to lose it. I had confidence in us as a business and that we were the right partner for them. And yeah, I just felt as like it was going to slip. And it, it slipped maybe a month or two, but it wasn't much. After the course, my deal was always that I like to let them slip three months, actually. Did you, did, you, did the pressure get, did the pressure get turned up at, at, in, at home, in the office, at work? Did you feel as though the heat was getting turned up and it was like, God, I can feel this deal's like, I'm taking over my life a little bit now? The deal certainly took over my life. There's quite a funny screenshot, actually. I was on a call at 7am one morning and then I was on that same, with the same people again at 8pm that evening. So... There's quite a screenshot of how we looked at the start of the day compared to the end of the day. I don't know where it is, but someone someone took it and they're still working it. So it certainly, it certainly took over my life. It was basically sort of 12 hours a day, three, four, five days a week in some cases. But yeah, the pressure, was it ever turned up? I turned up myself. I don't think there was ever pressure from above or if there was, my manager did a really good job of shielding me from it. So I, I turned up myself, right? I, I like to think I'm quite good at forecasting deals and I like to think that I have a really good understanding of when these deals are likely to come in and uh, and things like that. Because for us, we always have our customer success side of things and they're heavily involved throughout the project. So then they need to plan. And this was going to be a really big project for, for our customer success team. So if I'm telling them that this is going to sign in, let's just say January, and it, and they need people ready for February, all of a sudden, if it doesn't sign into April, these people are suddenly free and not doing anything and they may move on to another project. And all of a sudden, I lose that resource that I thought I had for this customer and so I turned the pressure up on myself, but I certainly didn't feel it from above, which I think is, as I say, I think it was more my manager protecting me from that pressure so that I was able to do my job in a comfortable manner, less so than them not actually putting pressure on me. Testament to a good manager as well. I've got thanks. Shout out to all the good managers out there who do that, who <laughs> never actually know everyone. You're like, am I actually getting hate right now? Because I don't really feel it. But I also emphasize what you mean there about turning the pressure up on yourself. Like we're all very competitive by nature in sales. And it's like, we've all got demands on ourselves and we all... And I don't know about you, but especially with a deal like that, as it gets close to the end, I start spending the money before I've even got it. It's terrible, terrible behavior. Or at least I do in my head. 
Yeah, I mean, my wife's an accountant, wrap- so she won't let me do that. Oh, nice. Mine's not, she's a spender. So just kind of to wrap us up then, do you remember like the closing phases of this deal, like maybe the last few weeks and the run up to when either the contract got signed or when everything started to go live? Was there anything notable in there to mention? Yeah, I'd say what really helped us at the end was, you. I mentioned about the exec relationships we had at the start. We didn't need to leverage them too much throughout the sales process because it was going in quite an... Some, I think, Jack, you mentioned that I had quite a nice sales process and it actually went quite well. It did feel like almost the ideal sales process. It almost followed the, 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 the path that you wanted to take. So we didn't really need to lean too much on the execs throughout. Everyone was doing what they said they were going to do when they were doing it. So that was good. But at the end, having that executive, executive relationships really helped. Like I remember just as they were about to sign, we had to meet with... CEO, CFO, CIO, CDO, all via Zoom. And if we didn't have those executive and the chief procurement officer as well was on the call, like having those executive relationships from the start made that conversation a hell of a lot easier than it would have been without them. And also with the legal conversations as well, being able to lean on the lean on the execs and say, look, hey, like this is something that's really minute. It's not going to affect either of us. And we can we potentially skip over it? I know your legal team are doing their job, but can we can we have a look or how can we potentially come come to an agreement on this? Because at the moment we've come to an impasse from a legal perspective. We need mm-hmm. to actually sort this out outside of that. And there were a few times that happened with the legal documents, as you can imagine, quite a big deal has quite a big sort of legal documentation that goes alongside it. So I think we were two months with their legal team sort of back and forth by sorry, calls twice a week for three hours every day each time. And having those executive relationships really helped us sort of progress when we felt like we reached a bit of an impasse take us home jack yeah i think what would be really good for as well we we'd like to do these final two questions and you sort of said one thing where you think you're great is being like the project manager and you know selling your brand internally that yeah we want to work with ian he's gonna you know deliver value to our customers what other skills do you think make you a great salesperson i got asked this yesterday actually and so hopefully um, not in another podcast Ian no no it wasn't (laughs) they didn't ask me what made me a great salesperson but what they asked me is well I was speaking to someone internally I helped with the onboarding and things like that and they asked me what do you think really helped you sell some sort of significant deals at Miracle and I think for me there's there's two things that I'd really sort of call out one of one of them is actually knowing our knowing our stories our customer stories and being able to being able to tell them in a manner in which no matter who I'm speaking to will understand. I think that's one. But the second thing that I think does, does me a lot, a lot of good and in certain conversations really helps me out. Although I'm a salesperson, I actually know our product quite, quite well, even down to sort of certain API calls and what they're doing and how they do it. And what that, what that provides is a bit of credibility. So when we're speaking to the tech teams and maybe it's a technical question, but it requires a business answer because people are in the business people are in the room. I can answer it in a way in which everyone will understand and we're not getting into the weeds of the technical side of things and sort of how do we wire this thing to that, et cetera. So I think those two things, being able to tell stories in a way in which it resonates with everyone, no matter whether they're C-level or whether I'm talking to my niece or, and then the other thing is actually being able to have a technical conversation, but flipping into a business answer is something that I, I'd like to think I'm quite good at as well. Ian, this has been class, mate. Thank you so much. Congratulations on a great deal as well. And like, I've really enjoyed listening to your story. I think my key takeaway here was about how it's about aligning 
kind of like the people internally to get on board with you and, and matching them up with the external parts as well. So appreciate the insight, all the detail and thanks a lot for joining us, mate. Yeah, thanks a lot, Ian. Hopefully we can have you on next year where you can be like, oh, guys, the one I told you in 2023, that's a little deal. Get ready for this. No big deal. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I look forward to it. No, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.